May it please the listeners, my name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. I am joined this time out by Daniel Wallach, who is a sports and gaming attorney and very active on the internet, where he tweets and writes on a blog a lot about the topic. And this is another guy who's kind of a blast from my past. We knew each other many years ago. Danny, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I haven't heard that one in a long time. We go way back to Hofstra Law School, Law Review, and maybe even Jim's Deli, where they had that guy <laughs> at the counter who didn't know anybody's name. He just said, hi, a counselor. Everybody was counselor. You know, right. <laughs> right. it's bringing right. back all the memories. That's a great thing about this profession. Sometimes you come across some of your friends and colleagues from school and earlier in your career, later on in your career. So it's my pleasure to join your podcast, Rich. Excellent. So what we're going to talk about today is the National Football League. Sort of an odd topic for this podcast, except for the fact that the NFL finds itself, at least in recent years, almost constantly embroiled in legal matters. And we don't have anywhere near enough time to go through all of them today. That would be uh, an awesome endeavor. We're going to do kind of a highlight show of a few of the issues that have been bothering the NFL lately. And I think we're going to start with the one that is really the most prominent currently, and that's discrimination, the Brian Flores case. Daniel, can you just tell us a little bit for those who maybe don't know about it, what the Brian Flores case is all about? I'd be happy to. I mean, the NFL's record when it comes to hiring black head coaches has been abysmal for decades. Prior to Brian Flores filing this lawsuit, I believe there had been one black head coach among the 32 head coaching positions in the league. And for a labor force, which is probably 60 to 70% black players, if not higher, there's disproportionate representation in the coaching ranks as well as in the general managing ranks. So with that setting the stage, Brian Flores is a black man who was the head coach of the Miami Dolphins for three years and coming off of a winning record, his three-year record, as the Dolphins head coach, I believe it's at least a 500 record. And he took over a woe-begotten team that was a rebuilding team. And he brought respectability and modest results in his three-year tenure as the head coach. And he gets fired after the 2021 season. And while he's interviewing for other jobs, the New York Giants had just recently fired Joe Judge and they fired their general manager, Dave Gettleman. Brian Flores was such a quote unquote hot candidate that Wellington Mara, the owner of the New York Giants, reached out and contacted him for a prospective coaching interview before Mara even hired a general manager under whom those responsibilities would typically fall. So he went through this Giants interviewing process. He made the finals, so to speak. He had his first round of interviews along with Brian Dable, who ended up becoming the head coach. And the, the interviews were being conducted by Brian Dable's former boss, so to speak, Joe Shane, who was the assistant general manager in Buffalo. Most people expected Brian Dable to get the job. So during this so-called second round of the interviewing process, Bill Belichick you know who Bill Belichick is? Yeah, he's the, I've heard of Bill Belichick. Yeah, former New York Jets head coach for one day. Sends a former, text Cleveland, former Cleveland Browns head coach. 
Well, blame Art Modell for that one. Uh, that, 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 that's, a, that's another story. He threw Bill Belichick under the bus. But Belichick texts Brian Flores thinking it's Brian Dable congratulating Flores for getting the New York Giants job when he is still when Flores is still yet to interview for the for the for the final interview of his position. So Belichick is sending him a text message essentially saying, hey, I know that Brian Dable got the job and it embarrasses Brian Flores, who thinks that his final interview is going to take place the next day when it was already a fait accompli that the Giants hired the white head coach and they're only putting the black head coach through the sort of the, the the process in order to satisfy this Rooney rule, which the NFL promulgated a decade or so ago to ensure that minority candidates are interviewed for head coaching positions. So in response to that text message on the first day of Black History Month, February 1st, Brian Flores files a class putative class action lawsuit against the National Football League, the New York Giants, the Denver Broncos, whom he accused of putting him through a, a sham interview process as well, and ultimately amended his complaint to include the Tennessee Titans and the Houston Texans, and subsequently two more black coaches joined as plaintiffs, alleging that they had been discriminated against as well. Right. Now, let me ask you about the class certification part of this. That interests me. What would be the class of plaintiffs beyond Brian Flores in this case? All, I think they define the class in the complaint as all coaching candidates, black coaching candidates who've been coordinators. You know what? I've got to look at the complaint again, but they allege that there are dozens of black coaches in the National Football League who've been discriminated against either because they've been put through sham interviews in order to satisfy the Rooney rule, or they were discriminated against by not being given the opportunity to interview for the position as head coach. And one of the secondary plaintiffs who just joined last week might be the sort of the perfect class member. And his name is Ray Horton, who was the defensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans for six years and has been a position coach in the National Football League going back 20 plus years. And he has never gotten an opportunity to become a head coach in the National Football League. And the use of statistics is often at times prima facie evidence or can create a a plausible inference of discrimination. And here, I think the statistics and how the NFL has conducted its head coaching process going back decades, the lack of minority representation in the head coaching position is so disparate to the representation of Blacks in the workforce, that if this had been Burger King or Starbucks or any other industry, it would obviously be a subject of litigation going on for years. But because it was the National Football League and it's the only industry, the only collection of of teams in the United States where one can ply their trade profitably as a head coach, there's nowhere else to go. So there was almost like a built-in anti-litigation mechanism in the form of you sue us, you're not going to be hired to play or to coach football. I mean, look what happened to Colin Kaepernick. He took the National Football League to arbitration a number of years ago, settled the case. And at the time he left football, not voluntarily, he was in the upper half of, in my opinion, and most people's opinions, you know, one of the better quarterbacks in the National Football League, certainly one of the top 90. And there are 32 teams that carry three quarterbacks apiece. So looking to see what happened with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, it obviously it has a chilling effect on the prospect of coaches suing the league and teams for discrimination, because it would likely mean you'll have to find a new career path. 
there's an interesting angle in this case because there were allegations in the Flores case of being offered money to lose games for one of the teams he worked on. Can you tell me a little bit about that aspect? In the 2019 season, in his first year as a head coach of the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores is alleging in his lawsuit that the team's controlling owner, majority stockholder, Stephen Ross, came to him and said, look, there are all these quarterbacks, Joe Burrow, I will offer you money, $100,000 for every game that you lose in order to secure the top overall draft pick. And he included that in his complaint. And in the amended lawsuit, he includes an allegation that he sent an internal memo to the team hierarchy detailing this alleged scheme. So I don't know that this has so much bearing on the racial discrimination component of the lawsuit, but what he's alleging that Stephen Ross committed was tantamount to a federal crime, offering a bribe to a team coach to influence the outcome of a game. There's a federal law known as the Sports Bribery Act, and then there's a Florida anti-sports bribery law, which also carries felony penalties. And if these allegations are true, I don't know how much it helps his lawsuit, but it's guaranteed to lead to an NFL investigation. And if there's any substance to this, that even if it was a joking offer or an attempt that was not consummated, that would be enough, I believe, for the National Football League to force Stephen Ross to sell his ownership interest. He's going to have to go through a, you know, get notice and an opportunity to be heard. But in, you know, prior, there'll be a league investigation. And if these allegations have any kernel of truth to them, the commissioner is empowered to recommend to the NFL executive committee that Ross be required to forfeit his ownership interest. And all it takes is three quarters of the ownership to vote in favor of an owner being forced to disassociate from the league. So that's where those things stand. It was an allegation made in the federal lawsuit that now is beginning to have a little bit of a life of, of its own. Right. Let's move to another area that's of interest right now, and that's player discipline. You mentioned hot quarterbacks. The competition to sign Deshaun Watson recently was fierce, despite the fact that he has, I think, 20 plus pending lawsuits against him filed by women who claim inappropriate behavior on his part. How does the NFL go about handling the issue of player discipline for things the players do outside of a football game? Well, the de facto NFL policy is to be heavy handed regarding discipline in recent years. I mean, when we were back in school, Pete Rozelle and Paul Tagliabue were the NFL commissioners. And there used to be this recognition that when a player was charged criminally, the preference was to allow the criminal justice system to for the process to play out. And if a player was convicted, then he would be suspended. If he was acquitted, no harm, no foul. So the NFL has historically taken a hands-off attitude when it came to off-the-field behavior, and it took an outcome in the criminal setting before the National Football League would act. Under the tenure of Roger Goodell, the NFL has taken a much more proactive role in some ways interfering at times with the criminal process, and even civil lawsuits. I mean, the Deshaun Watson case, we've never rose to the level of an indictment or a criminal proceeding. In fact, the grand juries in two different counties in Texas 
declined to recommend criminal charges. This is nothing more than unsworn civil allegations. And until Antonio Brown several years ago was placed on the exempt list over allegations that were contained in a law in a civil lawsuit, I had never heard of a situation with the NFL based discipline on an unadjudicated, unresolved, unsworn civil lawsuit. But all that changed with Antonio Brown and with Deshaun Watson. I think it's fair to point out in his defense, if one is going to defend him here, is that all of these plaintiffs are represented by the same lawyer who filed pretty much carbon copy complaints contemporaneous with one another. So I would feel much more, it's concerning what he's accused of, but these are not 22 plaintiffs that are unassociated with each other. They are all represented through a common council, and that council has spent the vast part of the last year or so trying to, in my opinion, gin up the criminal proceedings And what the NFL and the Houston Texans have done to Deshaun Watson, to use as an example of discipline, is investigate him. But while he's under investigation, the Houston Texans kept him inactive for 17 games, paid him his his salary, but essentially placed him on paid leave while the NFL has been conducting this never-ending investigation, which has now lasted more than one year and two months. And in a, in a livelihood or profession where these, albeit well-compensated players, have a very limited time in which to apply their trade, I would say that sidelining Sean Watson for a full year with the prospect of additional discipline still forthcoming on nothing more than civil lawsuit allegations is like almost unprecedented in the history of the National Football League. This never happened under Tagliabu or Goodell, and there's never been more, there have not been as, there is a, an unprecedented amount of disciplinary suspensions and resolutions under the Roger Goodell era. He has used the NFL disciplinary process parallel to civil and criminal right. proceedings and almost conducting their own investigation. His, yeah, his, his point of view seems to be, I will take care of it, I will decide the punishment, and it will be done. Right. That's right. He, That's he, exactly he wants, right. Yeah. He wants and, control of the situation. Well, he's ju- he, he's the fact finder, the investigator, the initial disciplinarian, and in many cases, the appellate judge. And the difficulty of being able to get a fair adjudication from the player's perspective is good luck seeking judicial review of a labor arbitration decision. The record of overturning those kinds of arbitration awards when everybody knows that there's this inherent built-in bias of Roger Goodell serving as the appellate judge enforcing his own discipline. I mean, even Tom Brady, Adrian Peterson, Ezekiel Elliott, those three players had what I considered to be very strong procedural process-based arguments to overturn their discipline in court. And whatever victories they were able to secure at the trial court level were either overturned at the Federal Court of Appeals or a different federal district court judge reversed or came out with a different outcome than the original federal district court judge. So if Brady and Peterson couldn't win their judicial lawsuits to overturn the suspensions, I don't think anybody can. It's like a Hail Mary. (laughs) A Hail Mary that Brady couldn't complete. It's not just players too, right? The NFL has to police the owners sometimes. So you have this Daniel Schneider situation going on. Where does that stand? 
Oh, Daniel Snyder is right now, it feels like a thousand cuts of death here. You know, he is under siege in a number of different respects. There's the ongoing congressional investigation, where it just seems like the Congressional House Oversight Committee is investigating the allegations of sexual harassment within the Washington Commanders football organization. Now there are new allegations of financial improprieties. Daniel Snyder is causing the ownership in the NFL much more grief than any other owner. And then he's sort of in the vortex of these allegations that John Gruden has brought. John Gruden was head coach of the Vegas Raiders until these emails started circulating that portrayed John Gruden as a misogynist, racist, homophobic person. He was essentially forced to resign. And there's a lot of suspicion that someone within the NFL potentially potentially Dan Snyder, might be behind the release of these emails. It just seems that federal court, state court litigation are constantly ensnaring Daniel Snyder. And I don't know why the National Football League has been protecting him because the allegations, he was investigated and the team was investigated for years worth of inappropriate behaviors within the organization at the executive level. And rather then force him to sell. The National Football League instructed, they took over the investigation from the Washington football team and they worked with a a lawyer in DC by the name of Beth Wilkinson. These allegations were so bad and her findings were so bad that the NFL ordered her to deliver her findings orally to them rather than produce a written report that could someday become the subject of discovery. So the NFL basically whitewashed the investigatory findings and fined Dan Snyder a pittance of $10 million. And he's under this sort of informal leave from the team. And that situation and that sort of non-finding led to Congress digging in and starting to poke around as to what occurred within the Washington football team organization. So these congressional hearings have led to threats of congressional subpoenas, a battle over documents. And the one thing you don't want to be is if you could if you could assert all these privileges in a federal court lawsuit, once you get before Congress and there are congressional subpoenas, that's a whole new ballgame because you may not be able to forestall the production of these documents under a congressional subpoena. You could be held in contempt of Congress. And Congress also has other tools at its disposal to force compliance, such as repeal of of the antitrust exemption for the NFL under the Sports Broadcasting Act. They could pass and repeal laws in a way to make life and business very uncomfortable for the NFL. So all of this, all roads lead back to Dan Snyder. And he is simply the number one source of consternation within the league office right now. And with the way that this is trending, I suspect that his ownership tenure is going to come to an end very soon. It's interesting to see, right, all these battles there. It's NFL fighting with their players, their coaches and their owners. So we got all the bases covered. It points in many ways to sort of a failure of leadership because Roger Gale's not a lawyer. He's the front person for the other owners, and he's essentially taking all the slings and the arrows and not engaging in real leadership and by trying to mitigate risk. Yeah, Adam Silver has kept the National Basketball Association away from nearly anything close to scandalous behavior like this. Even Gary Bettman, a lawyer who used to be a partner at Proskauer, has effectively 
steered the National Hockey League away from many of the controversies that threatened to ensnare it with concussions and allegations of homophobic behavior. I mean, there have been problems within hockey, but I think Gary Bettman and the league have tried to be proactive here, whereas with the National Football League, there's this notion that they're protecting the 32 billionaires who own the team rather than to protect the game. Right. All right. Let's turn to our last topic that we can get into this show, which is relocation of NFL franchises. Now, we talk about the the good old days when you and I were kids, Daniel. If you wanted to move an NFL franchise, you literally had to pack it up in a truck in the middle of the night and drive it away, which is I'm pretty sure what happened when the Baltimore Colts famously moved to Indianapolis all that years ago. But it seems like teams now are much more free to relocate. We're in Oakland. We're in Los Angeles. We're back in Oakland. No, we're in Las Vegas. We're up and down the coast without any kind of restraint. So why is that? Am I right about that? And why is that? You're absolutely right about that. The NFL has these relocation guidelines and criteria that are supposed to protect home markets. There were these spate of relocations throughout the 1990s, the Browns, the Colts in the 1980s, the Oilers moving to Houston. And in the aftermath of that, Congress started to poke around and hold hearings to potentially create federal guidelines concerning this. And in response to this, the National Football League, and it was also court rulings that prompted the NFL to create these relocation guidelines that were designed to establish objective criteria that teams had to satisfy in order to justify a relocation. But let's face it, these principles or criteria are in name only because in the last 25 years, there has not been a single instance of the National Football League preventing any team from relocating if it wanted to. And I think the classic case for that is the St. Louis Rams leaving the 23rd largest market of St. Louis, Missouri, in terms of TV market for the second largest TV market of Los Angeles. That was an organization that had tremendous fan support, had 80% or more attendance at games for every one of its 20 plus years, save for one year, which followed a one in 15 season. It had fan support up the wazoo. It had a stadium plan to replace the sort of outmoded dome building in St. Louis, yet the NFL still allowed the Rams to relocate after the vote had initially gone against the relocation, the first vote. It it, it had success. It had the greatest show on turf. It had a Super Bowl victory. It wasn't like a terrible franchise that never won. True that. But when Stan Kroenke bought the team 10 years after the greatest show on turf, he devised a plan from the outset. Actually, six years before the relocation, he came into his ownership with the intent and the plan to move the team to Los Angeles. And he secretly bought a large acreage in Inglewood, California in 2013, three years before the team moved. And they denied up and down that that had anything to do with a future football stadium. His team president said it's not suitable for football. One in a billion chance. We're staying here. And Cronky told the media in St. Louis, hey, you guys know me. I'm born and bred in Missouri. You can trust me. And everything they said over the course of the next four or five years was an outright lie. And during the first relocation vote that was held by the National Football League, 
the votes were against the relocation. And what happened after the fact was Jerry Jones, who owns a company called Legends, which is a hospitality company that would have had the contract for the new football stadium in Los Angeles, began to twist and back channel to turn a lot of the votes in favor of the team moving to Los Angeles. So all of these guidelines are just on paper. In actuality, they're not implemented or held, or the teams aren't held to the letter and spirit of these guidelines. And there's almost no recourse for cities to repatriate their teams back to the home market because at most you're left with a lawsuit for damages. So the teams and the league have absolutely no incentive and no fear of repercussions if they do the wrong thing and leave a city in the lurch and move to a different city. And that's why teams like the Buffalo Bills are able to extort, in my opinion, $850 million of public money from the state of New York on the mere unspoken threat of relocating because of the example set in place by the Cleveland Browns, the Baltimore Colts, the St. Louis Rams. These teams are owned by billionaires, but because of this whole relocation extortion game, which is facilitated by these hollow NFL relocation guidelines, it's a game and it's a threat that's going to play out city after city after city until virtually every NFL team has a brand new shiny stadium that's predominantly publicly financed. And that is unless and until some team succeeds in litigation or Congress steps in. Yeah, fascinating. All right. I introduced you as a sports and gaming lawyer, but I think there's probably more to it than that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your legal practice, how you earn your living? Well, I was sort of minding my own business as an appellate lawyer, commercial litigator for a top 15 Florida law firm, made it into my early 50s not handling anything sports related or gambling related. And at the ripe old age of 51, the litigation co-chair gave me a gambling case to handle, which was basically stayed by a state court. It was no activity in it for like two or three years. He just gave it to me to monitor. Well, within a month or two of my taking over, it activated and it was this epiphany. It was like the clouds opened up and I was fascinated by this subject matter. I won the case on summary judgment against a very experienced gaming lawyer on the other team, on the other side. And as a consequence, I made the crucial decision in 2012 to begin writing more about legal issues in and around the regulated gambling industry. And the first topic I wrote about was the litigation or the lawsuit between the state of New Jersey and the professional sports leagues over New Jersey's ambitions to legalize sports betting within the state of New Jersey over the objection of the sports leagues, where there was this federal law known as the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which stood in the way. So it was this constitutional challenge to the validity of this law. And I began writing about it incessantly. I was one of the few lawyers offering commentary on this subject matter on my blog. And then that took off. And my reporting on the lawsuit from just doing legal analysis began to generate an audience, not only within the gaming industry, but within the national media. And within the span of a couple of years, I went from writing about it to actually doing it and began representing horse racetracks, casinos. I became a thought leader, so to speak, in the field of the burgeoning legalization of sports betting. And I was able to pivot into gaming-related matters within the span of a couple of years. And when the Supreme Court overturned 
the federal ban on state authorized sports betting, that was the perfect moment. That was five years in the making to leave my law firm, set up shop in my own firm, and essentially chart my own path in a career in which I'm getting to work on things that I'm like super passionate about, which is sports gambling, sports law. My clients typically are gaming companies, casinos, sports teams, startup companies. I have a podcast now that delves into some of the issues that we talk about today. The podcast is called Conduct Detrimental. So I was very fortunate that this case, this lawsuit of the gambling case that I handled in 2012, and then the New Jersey sports betting case converged at the same time and allowed me to reevaluate my career and do something and focus on something that I was so passionate about rather than just be a, a lawyer who worked on you know, client matters. It gave me something to be passionate about, and I'm forever grateful about that. Well, that's fantastic. I love that story and glad you are out there and happy doing what you're doing. You mentioned Conduct Detrimental. That's your podcast. And I think it's also the title of your blog that can be found on the internet, right? ConductDetrimental.com. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. We have a weekly podcast where we, my partner and I, Dan Lust, great name, and, and I are co-hosts of the podcast. And we talk about some of these issues, Dan Snyder, Brian Flores. We bring a lawyer's lens to these burgeoning legal controversies in the sports industry with a heavy focus on professional and collegiate sports. All right. Well, on this podcast, we wrap things up with a closing argument. And I often let the guests sort of summarize what they've been talking about. But in this case, I'm going to ask you a question and see how you react to it. Even in this very short snippet, we covered a lot of pretty serious controversies that the NFL is embroiled in that are in the public eye. Do you think all of those legal problems hurt the league? I think marginally they do. I mean, if you're a fan in St. Louis, San Diego and Oakland and you lost your team, you're not going to be watching NFL games. And the ratings probably bear that out in some of the markets which have lost teams. But overall, on a national level, if the concussion controversy with player injuries and painkillers and the notion that all these players like leave the game, 100% of the players leave the game disabled to some degree, that for the fans, they're not as concerned about the business of the National Football League, what happens to the players. They root for their teams. Even when Ray Rice was accused of battering his wife and there was a uh, videotape showing it, when he returned to the stadium and made an appearance at the first home game of the season, I think it was 2014, he received a hero's welcome. And the fans will always root for their gladiators and the league will march on. They're the most popular sport among all the sports. There's so many different sports that are competing for our limited viewing time. And, and for a reason, the National Football League is always the highest rated sport on television, sellouts across the spectrum, more coverage than any other sport. So no, if they haven't been set back by all of these myriad controversies, sexual harassment, mistreatment of black players, total almost obliviousness to civil rights and social justice for so many years. If that hasn't harmed the league irreparably, I don't know what will, but eventually there's going to be a tipping point. And I don't know if they'll ever reach that tipping point, but they're constantly ensnared in controversy, much of which is of their own making. And 
a strong commissioner, a competent commissioner, someone with legal training and the understanding of risk management would steer the league clear of a lot of these controversies because it is like playing with fire and it may not have undermined public confidence in the game yet, but it's not helping the brand and it's slowly little by little diluting some interest in the game. And thankfully for the league, sports gambling, you know, my bread and butter has acted as a impetus for increased fan engagement, increased ratings, increased viewership. So I think overall, the league is like the Teflon Don. No matter what happens off the field or in the courthouse, the league will remain the most watched, focused upon, and popular sport in the United States. So if it hasn't happened yet, I doubt it will ever happen. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Daniel. Great to see you again. Great to talk about the NFL and take care. Okay. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Rich. So great to reconnect with you. I always enjoyed interacting with you in law school. Never thought we would reconnect 30 years later, but let's not let it be another 30 years. You're welcome to come on as a guest of my podcast at some point within the next 30 years, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I had a great time and just thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a pleasure. All right, everybody, take care. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. Law Brief.